0: Love Talk Radio. Radio.
1: Welcome to the show. Welcome to the jungle. Uh, Today, I got quite a bit for you. Ted Cruz enters legendary levels of cuckdom. He was very clear, very precise with his wording when describing January 6th. Uh, He said, hey, look, this is terrorism and these are terrorists. And then after getting just a wee bit of backlash from the Republican base, he uh, immediately morphs into a cheap lawn chair, and folds. So we'll talk about that. Tucker was the one who cucked him. Uh, Dick Cheney is welcomed as some sort of protector of democracy by Democrats. Oh, goodness gracious. Goodness gracious. Um, Will Pence flip on Donald Trump? The answer is, you'll have to wait and see. But uh, the January 6th, Testimony, if he gets subpoenaed, it might get interesting. Oprah tries to convince uh, Joe Manchin, and I'll let you know how that went. Nancy Pelosi was snubbed by John Ossoff, a senator who – you're just crossing your fingers and hoping, man, that somebody comes out of the blue for 2024 for Democrats. Um, And then we have the Texas Republican Party enters the dumb tweet hall of fame. And much much more so don't go anywhere oh probably my favorite story that we're going to do today is later on it is the 78th anniversary of one of the greatest speeches ever given by an American president and we're going to revisit that and we're going to talk about how uh, this is the path forward and there's no if ends or buts about it for Democrats but uh, really what this speech does is it shows the institutional rot of the current iteration of the Democratic Party so Without further ado, let's go ahead and get started. Ted Cruz. Ted Cruz has entered legendary levels of cuckdom. Uh, Now, this is a man who went back and forth with Donald Trump in the 2015-2016 Republican primary. Donald Trump uh, said that Ted Cruz's dad was involved in the assassination of JFK. (laughs) Just An absolutely absurd claim, Uh, but he made the claim repeatedly. And I honestly, I think the I think mainstream media low key sort of loved Trump saying this about Ted Cruz's dad just because it was really funny. Um, and Ted Cruz, you know, he, he didn't know how to respond to that. He's like, "What? <laughs> like, what are you talking about?" Uh, but then there was another fight that they had where Donald Trump retweeted something or quote tweeted something where it was a comparison of Heidi Cruz, that's Ted's wife, and Melania Trump, and it had some wording like. I wouldn't spill the beans on her. Which, you know, effectively is like, hey, your wife's ugly, bro. Melania's way hotter. And who would want to have sex with her? You know what I'm saying? So I, it, wasn't, it wasn't even like hidden sexual innuendo. It was like right out there. I mean, a guy running for president who's like, I wouldn't even fuck your wife, bro. Jesus. Oh, my God. Oh, my God, Donald. What are you doing? <laughs> So, Ted Cruz, you know, I don't know if you guys remember, but he came out and um, gave an interview, and he called. It was hilarious, because he's like, Donald, you're a sniveling coward, and keep Heidi out of this. Me, I'm Ted Cruz. Me. And um, then the interviewer asks, but will you vote for him if he's the nominee? And Cruz pauses, and he's like, I'm going to beat him. I'm going to be the nominee. Well, how'd that work out, Ted. Um, and then there was the famous instance where Ted Cruz went out at the Republican National Convention and gave a speech, and he said in so many words, like, hey, man, vote your conscience, which is a little bit of a wink and a nod to, look, you want to vote third party? You want to vote Gary Johnson? Go ahead. You want to vote for Evan McMuffin, the weirdo from Utah, who's like a CIA agent? By all means, go ahead. It was sort of like, hey, if you want to vote for Trump, go ahead. But look, man, I got some personal beef with him. What do you want me to tell you? So I'm going to come out here and not give the most ringing endorsement of this guy who was talking about my wife's looks and says that my dad killed JFK. Uh, Well, after that, Republican donors did not like that one bit. They called Ted Cruz in and they said, hey, dog, remember who owns you? Remember who your bosses are? And then Ted Cruz bowed his head and said, yes, sir. Yes, sir. I'm so sorry, sir. And uh, there's that famous picture of Ted Cruz phone banking for Donald Trump. Remember? He's got that, like, cucked face on Phone banking for Trump, after all the stuff Trump said. Uh, Well, now, after January 6th, he was clear. He was like, look, this was terrorism. The definition of terrorism is violence for a political or religious reason. Clearly, this was political violence. This is terrorism. Uh, That's not to say that these people are exactly like Al-Qaeda or whatever. um, But it's There is a label that describes what they did. He was very clear about that. Well, Tucker was not having it. So what you're going to see here is a compilation of all the times Ted Cruz called January 6th terrorism and the people who partook in it terrorists. And then you're going to see Ted Cruz invites him on to scold him about using the word terrorist, and uh, he backs down immediately. Watch.
2: police officers, tragically uh, murdering a police officer, terrorists breaking onto the floor of the Senate chamber and, and, and the floor of the House. I think Speaker Pelosi can, can testify as to whether she made a decision based on optics, based on politics, not to have additional uh, protection at the Capitol to prevent the terrorist attack that played out. We are approaching a solemn anniversary this week. Uh, and it is an anniversary of a violent terrorist attack on the Capitol. You called this a terror attack? The way I phrased things yesterday, it, it was sloppy, and, and it was frankly dumb. Terrorist, A terrorist attack that played out. A violent terrorist attack. I don't buy that. Happens. Whoa, 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 I don't buy that. It was a mistake to say that yesterday. I guess I just don't believe you.
1: Oh. You taste that? That is cucktastic right there, isn't it? Ted, that's the saddest thing I've ever seen, bro. Clearly he believes it's a terror attack. Clearly he thinks that label fits. That's obvious. That's why he said it repeatedly. And then now, a little bit of pushback, he's, oh, did I say that? What I meant was what happened was the sun was in my eyes, and me and Craig and then was down by the Safeway, and we went with Steve, and then we knew new phone, who this? What are you doing, bro? What was that? Look, in politics, sometimes strength and backbone is the thing that sells the most. But what Ted Cruz wants to do is be president one day. And so he doesn't want to piss off the base, and he knows that right now Donald Trump owns the base of the Republican Party. So he just backs off because he feels like this isn't a fight I could take on. This isn't a fight I could win. And, look, he goes on in that interview to say the people who are terrorists, let me be clear, not all of them are terrorists. A lot of people, there are patriots, and they care about the country and you know, they were doing what they thought was the right thing, and that's categorically different. The people who I think are terrorists are the ones who attacked police officers. That's terrorism. So he goes on to say that. Now, would it have been so difficult, Ted, for you to not do the cuck knee-bending at the beginning, just like, oh, I just spoke, and my words were not precise, and they're all stupid. And... But the ones who attack cops are, are terrorists. Because, by the way, he even goes on to say that, and Tucker pushes back on that, too. Tucker's like... I. That's not terrorism by any definition of the word terrorism. And Ted Cruz's response is... Uh, Now, so, he should have just been like, yeah, it's terrorism. The definition of terrorism is violence for political or religious reasons. There's nothing in the word terrorism that necessitates uh, somebody else to die. Now, some people did die on January 6th, but I know the point that the right-wingers are trying to make is like, well, you can't compare this to people who are... uh, you know, like to Al-Qaeda, targeting people on purpose. The whole point is the dead bodies. The whole point in this instance, one would argue, was not the dead bodies. So how dare you equate those two things? But Ted could have just said, hey, man, I didn't misspeak. That's exactly what I meant. And I'm saying the ones who attack cops are terrorists. You're really saying they're not? So you're really saying that people who kill cops or try to kill cops are not terrorists, Tucker? You want to be on record saying that? And he could have went – he could have been the I'm rightier than now type person, and said, I think blue lives matter. Apparently you don't, Tucker. That's what I think. I'm with law enforcement. You're not? Jeez, I thought you were with law enforcement, Tucker. He could have done that, but he doesn't have the alpha male streak in him. He just immediately cucks himself. But now listen, so I'm beating up on Ted Cruz, and as we should, he, he's the slimiest, smuggest, smarmiest weasel of a politician. All he cares about is being president. So not, everything he does, you have to look through that lens. He eventually wants to be president. He thinks he's like the chosen one because his daddy told him. And so everything is just like shape-shifting. How do I say the right things that will get the right reaction? I'm Ted Me. And that's what leads him to misstep so often because he has no core. He has no principles. But I'm not going to let Tucker off the hook here either because Tucker, he was very clear in that interview. Go watch the whole interview. Tucker's like, it's not terrorism. It's not terrorism by any stretch of the definition. I don't know what you're talking about. That's not terrorism at all. That's not terrorism at all. So Tucker's trying to – Tucker just playing to that Trump base. He doesn't believe in anything either, but he's just alpha-manning Ted Cruz here. So look at what Tucker said when there was a different kind of riot. So we had the riot at the Capitol, January 6th. It was right-wingers who were doing it. Uh, when there was the post-George Floyd riots, look at the language – That Tucker Carlson chose to use.
2: What we're living to right now, despite what people have told you, is not a local problem. This is a national crisis. The riots are designed to produce a national result, the destruction of our system of government and the removal of Donald Trump. People expect a president to respond to a moment like this to fix it, and they have a right to expect that the president runs the country. If the rioters were Saudi nationals, it would be very clear that there is nothing local about what we're watching, we would understand immediately that it's terrorism. The president would give a prime-time address. Within hours, the feds would be hunting these people down and arresting them.
1: Terrorism. So, when people protest, and when people riot after the murder of an unarmed black citizen, well, that is terrorism. When people riot, based on totally bogus, false, debunked information that, oh, the election was stolen. Really? 60 court cases. How'd that work out? Arizona audit. How'd that work out? Somehow that's not terrorism. Riots done by right-wingers, not terrorism. Riots done by nominal left-wingers, or Antifa, or BLM, well, that's terrorism. Listen, the main point of talking about this, other than Ted Cruz being a colossal cuck, is understand that none of these people believe anything. None of them actually evaluate the world and the issues based on the information that's there. None of them are honest. None of them are principled. None of them are doing anything other than looking through rigid partisan blinders. And in the case of Ted Cruz, he just wants to be president, so he's going to say anything that he thinks gets him closer to that. And in the case of Tucker, he's playing for a team. He is a tribalist. He is a partisan hack. He's done a lot of work to try to distinguish himself, to act like, who me? No, I'm more... I'm more of like a populist on the right. I'm more of like a truth teller. I'm I'm anti-establishment and on the right. No, you're not. You're just playing to the Trump base. You know that that's where the energy is in the Republican Party, and you want to be the person who's the media figurehead of that group. And so, again, any sort of principles, any sort of objective analysis is straight out the window. Left-wingers riot, it's terrorism. Right-wingers riot, how dare you call it terrorism? Don't you dare say that. These people are pathetic. Now, listen. One of the missions of this show is to deconvert people from having absurd beliefs, and I think this is just a great example of why you should never take a word these people say seriously. Now, look, don't get it twisted. A broken clock is right twice a day. So, if Ted Cruz happens to have a random good take on something, fine. I'll give him credit. I think there was one time he gave AOC credit for something. I forget what it was. I don't know if it was the uh, banks with the the, the anti-loan-sharking bill that her and Bernie did, I don't know if it was that or something else, uh, in the case of uh, Tucker Carlson, he gave Bernie and AOC credit with that um, anti-loan-sharking bill. Sometimes he postures as against war. I enjoyed it when Tucker Carlson was yelling at John Bolton on air and saying the neocons are wrong. You got, unlike them, we are objective, and I will be fair when somebody has a good take, but understand, that is not the game they're playing. They are not playing the empirical analysis game. They are not trying to be ideologically consistent in any way, shape, or form. They are total and complete partisan hacks. Ted Cruz only wants to be president. Everything that comes out of his mouth is to serve that purpose. And uh, Tucker Carlson, his whole thing is, I'm going to be Trumpier than now, and I'm going to appeal to the base more because he knows that's where his bread is buttered. His bread is buttered by repping a particular ideology. Uh, A particular, excuse me. He's not ideologically driven. His bread is buttered by being the spokesperson for the most loud and aggressive fringe of the right-wing base. That's a better way to put it. So I just need everybody to understand that, man. I just need everybody to understand that. What you're seeing here is multiple lever- levels of hackery on both sides. Now, in this instance, I, you know, I led with the Ted Cruz part because that's funnier and because he's just a giant cuck. Uh, but Tucker is equally as bad here, just in a different way. Pathetic. It's just absolutely, positively pathetic. And the fact of the matter is those people on January 6th, there's a lot of stuff to blame for what happened on January 6th. You know, a total full analysis and breakdown of what led to January 6th is a fascinating thing because what you see there is probably one of the main culprits is just brainwashing. It's just, you know, One America News Network and Newsmax and Fox News actually less so at the time, because they weren't all in on this idea that the election was stolen. They, I mean, they called the election pretty quickly for Joe Biden. So they're actually a little bit less to blame for what happened. But, you know, QAnon online, there was all this this concerted effort to argue, no, your country is being stolen from you. This election was stolen from you. And you've got to keep the good guys in power, the good guys being the Republicans. And so people genuinely believed that, and they went and stormed the Capitol, and you know, they thought they were patriots. They thought they were doing like a second American Revolution or some shit. From their perspective, that's what they were doing. So, ideological brainwashing is maybe the biggest part of it. Um, and then you do have another part of it. Now, a lot of the people who went to the Capitol, we saw some, you know, breakdowns of economics of it, and some people were actually wealthy storming the Capitol. So, for those people, you can't say it was genuine material pain that led to that. For those people, it is just brainwashing. But then there was a contingent of people there who've been struggling for decades, and you know, they can't get a break, and their, the fact that their lives are in disarray and their material situation and economic situation is horrendous and they've never gotten a break and they're deep in debt and they feel wrongly that this guy trump represents the only person taking on the establishment and helping me out so i got to go help him so in one sense it's also the total rot and degradation of our institutions that have left people like that behind that led to january 6th so there's plenty of blame to go everywhere our entire political it's an indictment on our entire political system uh it's an indictment on the brainwashing that you get from the far-right outlets and qanon and other things online and um it's a really interesting and deep conversation but interesting and deep conversations are not being had on the tucker carlson show and they're not being had by ted cruz this is just empty political posturing and it's absolutely pathetic And I don't know who I hate more, but I am inclined in this instance to say Ted Cruz, just because that extra level of cuckdom really is the cherry on top for me. Okay. Let's continue. So we just went after the right. Now it's time to go after the Democrats, who also are arguably on the right, (laughs) right? Not really, arguably, but you get the point. So Dick Cheney um, and Liz Cheney went to this moment of silence on January 6th. There was this commemoration that was done that the Democrats put together. And it was classic Democratic stuff. I mean, you had Nancy Pelosi had Lin-Manuel Miranda and the cast of Hamilton come, and they, like, sang a song, and it's like, oh, my God. There was this Onion article in 2016 that said Democrats are trying to connect with working-class voters, so they're bringing in the cast of Hamilton um, to do a Lena Dunham-inspired song or something like that. <laughs> and it's like, yeah, this is, you think this can connect with anybody? No, this is like elite liberalism 101. Like everybody's rolling their eyes. The lefties on Twitter were ripping it apart perhaps even more than the right was, the stupid, you know, singing and Hamilton cast being there. Anyway, so um, they have this moment of silence and everybody's, you know, being really somber. And Dick Cheney and Liz Cheney are the only Republicans who show up. The only one. Um, now Adam Kinzinger, who's like a very vocally anti-Trump Republican, even though his voting record is very conservative. Uh, he apparently was supposed to be there, but he just had a baby or something. I don't know. I don't know the details of that, but again, Dick and Liz were the only ones who showed up, but I want to show you what happened here. Cause I do think this, um, is important for a number of reasons. So remember this whole thing is like democracy almost died. And we are the people who are fighting for the continuation of democracy here in this room. So Nancy Pelosi, wraps up the moment of silence and the commemoration and whatever was going on inside congress here and then watch what happens with liz and dick after so for people who can't see this i'm going to explain what's happening so nancy pelosi pounds the gavel you got a couple democrats walking up to liz and dick you got handshaking you have thank you you have you know big of you to be here exchanging niceties with Dick Cheney. Nancy Pelosi comes down and beelines for Dick Cheney to talk to Dick Cheney, saying thank you to Liz, holding her hand, talking to Dick Cheney, shaking his hand, saying thank you, thank you for being here. Now, there's a line that's forming behind Nancy Pelosi. So you had the event was over. A couple Democrats went to shake Dick Cheney's hand, say thank you. Uh, Nancy Pelosi beelines for Dick Cheney takes his hand thank you for being here we appreciate it and when Pelosi beelined for Dick Cheney I don't know if you caught it go back if you didn't a whole line of Democrats follows her so it's Pelosi and then there's a line of Democrats waiting to shake Dick Cheney's hand say thank you for being here thank you for standing up thank you for doing what's right now I don't know, some people might look at this and say, oh, look, it's a positive thing. At least Dick Cheney and Liz Cheney are right on this. Like, they're right that January 6th was bad. There shouldn't have been a riot or an attempted insurrection. Uh, We should have never gotten to the place where it appears like it was only down to Mike Pence doing the only correct thing he's ever done in his life that stood between us and an attempted coup. Um, I think those are all fair points. But there is a huge problem here. The problem is, They're effectively allowing Dick Cheney and Liz Cheney to side with the protectors of democracy. We're with you guys. We are the protectors of democracy. That's why we're here. That's why you're fawning over us and shaking our hand and and saying thank you. And the fact of the matter is there couldn't have been a Donald Trump without a Dick Cheney and a George W. Bush and the complete and utter institutional rot and degradation of the rule of law. Arguably started with George W. Bush and Dick Cheney. Now, there's that famous old Chomsky quote, quote, and Chomsky's correct, that every post-World War II American president would have been hanged if the Nuremberg Laws were upheld. That's accurate. But I don't think anybody was worse in destroying the Constitution and destroying the rule of law than Dick Cheney and George W. Bush. I think, even though Trump, not to downplay any of the horrors of Trump, because he was horrible, but anybody familiar with the specifics of the actions of the Bush-Cheney administration knows George W. Bush and Dick Cheney were actually worse. They were worse. This is a person who, to this day, defends the illegal, unconstitutional use of torture, which we now know they used on people who were not al-Qaeda and not jihadists and not terrorists. Bush and Cheney cut a deal with warlords in Pakistan and Afghanistan and said to them, hey man, we were attacked on 9-11, send us Al-Qaeda. Well, it turns out warlords in Pakistan and Afghanistan are not the most trustworthy people. So what they did is rounded up their political enemies and shipped them off to Guantanamo Bay, where we proceeded to lock them up indefinitely and torture them. There was even a German citizen by the name of Murat Kurnaz who we tortured for years. There had to be some sort of deal between Germany and the U.S. to eventually release Murat Kurnaz, But he's not the only one. There are countless ones. We also use the torture techniques that we found in communist Chinese manuals on how to torture. We put Japanese soldiers to death in World War II for waterboarding our soldiers. Then we waterboarded and had the nerve to turn around and say, this isn't torture, this is enhanced interrogation. It was Dick Cheney who led the charge to pretend like torture wasn't torture. They also got rid of due process. They also got rid of habeas corpus. It was also under them where they decided no more Fourth Amendment protection from unreasonable search and seizure. We're going to have the NSA collect the metadata and spy on all Americans, all Americans. So you go down through the Constitution, through the Bill of Rights, you realize it was Dick Cheney and George W. Bush who ripped it up more thoroughly than anybody else. So on the contrary, not only is he not the protector of democracy, he is the destroyer of democracy. It was him and George W. Bush that led the charge on the illegal and offensive wars against countries that didn't attack us. These guys sparked the war on terror and kept the war on terror going. Seven trillion dollars later, thousands of American soldiers dead. Hundreds of thousands, if not millions, of innocent civilians in the Middle East dead. Hundreds of thousands, if not millions, displaced. And now he gets to waltz back into the American political picture and be viewed as some sort of hero or protector of democracy because of what happened on January 6th, and then he says, hey, Trump is bad. There needs to be a higher bar for good person and protector of democracy than Donald Trump is bad. That is the lowest bar in human history. That is the lowest bar in human history. Now, I'm not downplaying the horrors of Trump, and I do think it's good that anybody on the right would step up and say, hey, man, January 6th, that wasn't good. This guy fails on every other prong of the test, every other one. And he arguably did more to destroy democracy than even Donald Trump did. And so, no, you don't welcome him back into the club. No. No, 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 no. 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 Look, in all seriousness, this is a guy who's a war criminal. He should be in The Hague. He's a war criminal. He, um, it's a tragedy that this guy won't spend the rest of his life behind bars for the pain and suffering that he inflicted on the world. So... The neocons, don't get it twisted, the neocons have a stranglehold on both parties. When Donald Trump was president, he didn't break free from the neocon imperialist hawk influence. He had John Bolton as his top advisor. He had Mike Pompeo, who bragged about being in the CIA and saying, we lie, we cheat, we steal. And what did he do? Donald Trump assassinated a top Iranian commander who was on the ground fighting ISIS. Donald Trump escalated with almost every country. He increased the drone war, over 430%. He occupied Syria and was bragging about the fact that we're taking their oil. This is what Donald Trump did. He had the neocons steering the ship. He even said, oh, we're going to get out of Afghanistan, and then they never got out of Afghanistan. It was Dick Cheney and George W. Bush who started the war in Iraq, who started the war in Afghanistan. And, you know, the military-industrial complex made out like bandits. It was the military-industrial complex that did shoddy electrical work on the bases in the Middle East that we had and some of our soldiers died because there was electrocutions happening in the shower and it was all for profit motive they were profiteering off of the war go watch the the documentary Iraq for sale the war profiteers tell me that doesn't blow your mind because what you learn is a lot of this looks like it was all for the profit and remember it was Dick Cheney who worked for Halliburton a defense contractor they're a subsidiary I think Kellogg Brown and Root And there were so many no-bid contracts that went to KBR. And Dick Cheney, when he left that place, got an exit bonus of millions of dollars. This is all a matter of record. And then this is the guy who pushes for the illegal wars that gets him and his buddies rich. That's who Dick Cheney is. That's who Dick Cheney is. Now, Donald Trump does go a step further in one respect, which is, He clearly was not a big fan of the peaceful transition of power. And if if Pence had tried to steal it for him, he would have been all in with, yeah, I won this shit, and I'm not going anywhere. Let's declare a national emergency. He asked the guy in Georgia, to go find me more votes. So Trump took it one step further, Dick Cheney and George W. Bush. The one thing they didn't have in them was to try to not abide by a peaceful transition of power here in the U.S. But again, this is uh, damning with faint praise, if you ask me, because in every other imaginable way, this guy's a criminal. And uh, it was during the George W. Bush and Dick Cheney administration where I got politically involved and I noticed what was going on. and, And I haven't even touched on domestic politics, how they cut taxes for the rich and they deregulated further. And we had the subprime mortgage crisis and the Great Recession under them. I could go on and on here, but these are not your friends. These are not your allies. We know what they did with power. And it was either equally as bad as Trump or worse than Donald Trump. So... It's just sad. And the neocons still have a lot of sway in the Democratic Party and in the Biden administration. Biden said when he was running, we're going to jump right back into the Iran deal. And then what happened? We didn't jump right back to the Iran deal. We didn't do it. We said we were going to do it. We didn't do it. Thankfully, he pulled out of Afghanistan. Biden did. But then he turned around and sanctions them like crazy. And now you have a million people starving in Afghanistan, which is arguably worse than the frickin' war in the first place. So the neocons have a stranglehold on both parties. And they're welcomed with open arms in both parties. And that's the problem. And so here you have the Democrats acting like a guy who destroyed democracy is the protector of democracy. Because he virtue signals about Trump being bad. No, Trump is bad. Dick Cheney is also bad. And that needs to be kept in mind. Let's continue.
0: Let's continue, baby.
1: So Mike Pence, um, Mike Pence, at the very last minute, did the right thing for the election. He had this symbolic role of verifying the election. in Congress, and he did it. Now, there was pressure from the Trump base and from Trump himself saying, Mike, don't certify the results. Now, again, I don't. if he were to even try to not do it, I don't think that's legally binding, because we've already had the processes in place. We already know the results of the election. We already had the 60 court cases where Trump lost. Um, there's nothing Mike Pence could really do, because I'm going to single-handedly try to overturn the election. But People who are conspiracy-minded on the far right thought there was something you could do. So Mike Pence did the right thing. and was like, yeah, okay, yeah, Biden won. What do you want me to do? Uh, And this is a guy who was so loyal to Trump every step of the way. Well, when that happened, Trump snapped. Because it doesn't take much for Trump to turn on you, to stick the knife in your back and twist it. We saw this over and over again in his administration. That's why there was such high turnover in his administration, because he would axe anybody who he felt wasn't one zillion percent loyal to him and didn't do everything that he wanted them to do. So Trump has that authoritarian impulse that he often flexes. And since then, there's been a number of other stories that we've covered on this show about how, look, Trump and Pence are officially broken up. And Trump said a number of things, like, if slash when Trump runs in 2024, he's not running with Mike Pence again. He axes him completely because of what he did. So now Trump's um, litmus test is you have to be a trillion percent loyal to me, and you have to say that the last election was not free and fair. So that's Trump's litmus. Nothing to do with policy, nothing to do with helping the American people. It's all me, 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 protect my ego. So, well, that puts Pence in an interesting situation, doesn't it? Because we have the January 6th uh, committee and hearings ongoing, and a lot of people are voluntarily talking. Um, Then you have a lot of people who are being subpoenaed. And look at what we have here. So Raw Story says, Pence wants to testify in January 6th probe, but fears backlash from the MAGA base. This is a former aide to Mike Pence who's saying this. So they go on to describe how, listen, is he going to do it voluntarily? No, probably not. Um, but if he's subpoenaed, will he talk? Yeah, this just got interesting. Now, there's one big problem, though, and it's the same problem we see with Ted Cruz. Ted Cruz wants to be president more than anything else in the world. And he will do everything to try to win. Now, funny enough, that's actually maybe the main thing that's going to prevent him from being president. Is when you want it so bad and it's so obvious you're putting the cart before the horse, people look at you like a smug, smarmy, um, weird, overly calculating person in the first place. Just like Hillary. And that's true. Mike Pence also wants to be president really bad. And he thinks it's like fulfilling God's plan because he's super religious. So Mike Pence, he wants to be president. He values that above, above everything else. He thinks if he testifies, that'll ruin his chances of becoming president he doesn't want to cross the Trump base, which is the base of the Republican Party at this point. But on the other hand, he also feels like, look, we got to finish Trump off because the whole Republican Party is tied to Donald Trump. And if he runs again, he'll probably win again. So, like, what can I do to make it so that this guy's political career is dead and gone fully and completely? And so that would indicate, hey, testify. So he has two urges. One is don't testify. It'll hurt your chances of being president. The other is testify. It'll help your chances of being president. And this is why I told you guys, look, the thing that McConnell could have done immediately after January 6th, it was sitting right there for them. You know, everybody's all impeached Trump or whatever. Trump's leaving office anyway. Why would you impeach him? That doesn't, that's not going to change anything. What they could have done, and there was a legal process whereby you do this, is ban him from any public office moving forward. That's what they could have done, and they didn't do it. And so now, there's a the constant threat of Trump, and he still has the heart of the base. Well, Mike Pence could tell the truth and bury Trump and also destroy his chances of being president. Look, I think if he were to testify, it would destroy his chances of being president, because that that's Trump's base. The Republican Party base is Trump's base. But if he could just somehow convince himself like, no, actually, this might help my chance of being president, because then Trump's totally out of the picture, well, then he might do it. So he had enough integrity to not say, oh, Trump won and the Biden win was illegitimate. He had enough integrity to do that. Does he have enough integrity to testify? I don't think so. (laughs) I don't think so. But it is possible if he subpoenaed any talks, that we can get more of the juicy details. Now, the other thing I'll add, the little asterisk here at the end of the conversation is it doesn't even matter what Pence says unless that's used to spur Congress into action to then pass the law that Trump can never be president. Um, and that seems highly unlikely. I mean, the Democrats hold the House right now, so it could pass the House. In the Senate, you run into trouble. I mean, maybe you have some like the Mitt Romney types who might sign off on this idea that, no, he should never be president again because he wanted to stay in office after he lost. But are you going to find enough Republican votes in order to get that done? I don't think so. So ultimately, I think most of the pressure here is on Pence to not talk. But for the love of God, wouldn't it be amazing if he felt like, no, this might help my chances of becoming president because then Trump's out of the picture if I take him out of the picture, and so then he does it. But you'd be asking Mike Pence to potentially take a bullet for his own career to do that. And I think he's smart enough to know it probably won't help him politically if he does it because the Republican base is the Trump base. So ultimately, will Mike Pence flip on Trump in January 6th testimony? I don't think so. I think if he, if they subpoena him, I think he will talk, but I think it's more likely he takes the rough edges off of what really happened that day. And maybe we get a couple big stories out of it, but it, won't, it wouldn't be enough to tank Trump. Because as we all know, usually the harder the media goes after Trump, and the more negative stories there are about Trump, the more it helps him. Because that base is married to the guy. And funny enough, they, that sort of builds Trump's narrative for him. Hey, look, the establishment of both parties is against me, so I must be doing something right. Well, sometimes, no, what you did was actually really, really wrong, and that's why both parties are against you. But there's so much institutional distrust in this country that he can use that to his benefit. So I don't think Mike Pence uh, is going to flip on Trump in the way that could really bury Trump, Um, but I do put the proposition at 50-50 that he'll give testimony. But he would have to be subpoenaed for it, so we shall see. There was news that, like, Alex Jones was subpoenaed. I haven't heard anything about that since. I don't know if it's coming in the future, but look, largely even, I know what happened on January 6th was horrendous, but keep it real. What's happening now with this thing is largely political theater. Because if nothing's going to come of it substantively, then what are we doing here? Um, And that's a shame. They went after, there was like hundreds of people have been, you know, prosecuted and locked up for actually breaking the law on January 6th. That's good. But in terms of this Commission, unless at the end of it, there's a law passed that said Donald Trump can't hold office in the United States of America, then it's, I think it's a waste of time. And even Joe Manchin said this in talks with Republicans early on. He's like, look, you got to give us this January 6th Commission thing, because at least then we can do the political theater. And that'll distract people from the fact that we ain't doing shit in terms of policy substance. That's what Joe Manchin was saying to Republicans. It's like, hey, get on board with this. So we don't have to do make any actual changes to our laws and the social safety net. And we don't have to pass policy that will help people. Because we could just give the Democratic base political theater and that might be enough to distract them and rile them up and help the Democrats moving forward into the next election. So anyway, Mike Pence had the integrity to not say Trump won when the election was, or excuse me, yeah, to not say Trump won when the election was being certified, to do the right thing then. I don't think he has enough integrity to really now turn the tables, put the knife in Trump's back and twist it, because he might accurately determined that this would help, this would hurt his own political chances of being president in the future. He wants to ride on the Trump coattails and become president. He doesn't want to slit Trump's throat and leave him in a ditch and become president. And he probably thinks that that's unlikely to happen anyway because the base loves Trump so much. So anyway, there you have it. But so many steps, there were so many steps of the way where the Republican Party could have done more to bury Trump and make it so he can never hold office again. And they just didn't do it. And they didn't do it because they're cucked, and they were hoping that slowly but surely Trump would fade away. Well, that's not the case, and he's still the top figure in the Republican Party. And so now for 2024, he's a favorite on that side of the aisle. And um, you could have just done a clean break. You could have just ripped that Band-Aid off quickly, but they didn't do it. They didn't do it, and so here we are. Okay. Next, 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 next. So this next story is something else. And it proves a point that we've been making for a very, very, very long time. A number of outlets are reporting that um, Oprah Winfrey, Barack Obama, and Bill Clinton have called Joe Manchin and urged him to back killing the filibuster so the Democrats can pass voting rights legislation, report claims. Manchin told colleagues his phone has been lighting up with calls in recent days. Moderate Senators uh, John Tester, Tim Kaine, and Angus Kinn were once leery of doing away with the 60-vote hurdle, now lead campaign to sway Manchin. Tester, Kaine, and King have reportedly met with Manchin at least three dozen times to discuss filibuster reform. Kaine likened the effort to persuade Manchin to him being trapped on Interstate 95 for 27 hours this week, quote, slow progress toward a goal like my commute. So other conservative Democrats, Talk to Joe Manchin and said, hey, dog, we got to do something on the filibuster or we are so ski for the next election. You have no idea. We're going to get wiped out from coast to coast. That's the reality. Um, they're trying to convince him. But you had Oprah Winfrey, Barack Obama and Bill Clinton try to convince him. Now, I should be clear. They're not talking about Build Back Better. So Bill Clinton, Barack Obama and Oprah Winfrey did not try to convince Joe Manchin. Hey, man. We need to do Build Back Better. Because. We've got to improve the lives of the American people. A lot of these ideas are really popular and would help them so much, whether it's universal pre-K or uh, lower prescription drug prices or elder care or what have you. They weren't lobbying on that, which, by the way, I think that's something. But they were lobbying on we have to either abolish the filibuster or reform the filibuster and pass voting rights legislation because the gerrymandering is so out of control that Democrats need to win by like five points in order to even hold the current numbers that they have so there's a built-in disadvantage for the democrats against the gerrymandering gerrymandering skews right and so if you don't do voting rights reform well the republicans are guaranteed curb stop the democrats and so really it was more of a survival thing from oprah winfrey bill clinton and barack obama talking to joe manchin now one point to make is the one I just made, which is interesting. So you didn't think it was urgent enough for Oprah, Bill Clinton, and Barack Obama to press Manchin on Build Back Better and the actual policy substance that would improve the American people's lives. But it was for filibuster reform to, to try to get voting rights through. Hmm. So that says, first and foremost, the priority of the Democrats are survival. Let us Let's find a way to keep us in power. But the other thing beyond that is, Hey, how'd that work out for you? How's that going? How's that going? Has Joe Manchin announced support for abolishing the filibuster? No. Has Joe Manchin abolished... uh, Has Joe Manchin came out and said, uh, I'm for reforming the filibuster? No. So you're using all these celebrities and these conservative Democrats and trying everything, and it ain't working. I've never seen better evidence that... um, the approach that we advocate to politics being correct. What did I tell you guys from the beginning? You're not going to get anywhere with him by holding hands and singing kumbaya, because this guy is totally bought and owned by the corporate donors, so he's going to do their bidding first and foremost. The only way you're going to get this guy to do the right thing is to make him him an offer he can't refuse. So um, his daughter's a criminal. We know that she was involved in the EpiPen price gouging scandal. They have her dead to rights on email saying, look, how do we come up with a rationalization to jack up these prices? So she's the re- reason why one of the main reasons why there was price gouging in regards to insulin or excuse me, not insulin, the EpiPen. Uh, his wife was involved in another political scandal where she committed crimes. Joe Manchin himself, massive conflicts of interest. He sits on the committee that determines what's going to happen with climate change. And this is a guy who's made millions of dollars from dirty energy. Joe Biden could have called Joe Manchin into his office and said, very simply, my guy Merrick Garland is looking into your daughter and what she did with the EpiPen price gouging. And it does not look good for her. Now, I don't want her to go to jail. I don't. I like you, Joe. So that's why I'm going to offer you an out. If you don't do the right thing, I can't stop Merrick. And maybe he's going to take down your daughter, maybe your wife, maybe your whole family, maybe you. You might end up behind bars. But if you do the right thing, and if you vote the right way, I'm going to have a talk with Merrick, and I'm going to make damn sure well that he knows you better ease up on the mansions. So if you do the right thing, look, I'll sweeten the pot. Not only will you and your family uh, not be prosecuted, but we'll build a statue to you in West Virginia. We'll give you even more infrastructure money. We'll take you or whoever you want and put them in our administration. You'll be a hero if you do the right thing on Build Back Better and on the filibuster. You'll be a hero. But if you don't do that, I don't know what you want me to tell you. They're going to go after your daughter. They're going to do that. Now, Joe, you can go run to the media and tell them about our meeting here. But that's not going to stop Merrick Garland from prosecuting the crimes that were committed by your family. So it's up to you. It's up to you. If you do the right thing, you're a hero. If you do the wrong thing, it's going to be a tough, tough time for the Manchin family now, isn't it? That's what you had to do. And you didn't do that. And even if that didn't work, you still have another move. You still have another out. Public pressure campaign. Everybody go get, goes and gives speeches in West Virginia. You run ads on West Virginia TV, calling him corrupt Joe Manchin, saying here's the money he's taken from these industries, here who he's representing, he's not representing you. Here are the polls that show West Virginia people support Build Back Better. This is what you do. They didn't do it. And they they did what is the ideal other strategy, like the other the quintessential version of the opposite strategy of backslapping and holding hands and seeing kumbaya and puppies and rainbows and let's talk nice. They had two former presidents and Oprah Winfrey talk to him. Hey, Joe, how you doing? Well, let's talk about this. Here's why this is a good idea. I think it's a wonderful thing. Maybe you should think about it. All the niceties in the world didn't get you anywhere. Didn't get you anywhere. And even if he does agree to some carve-out for voting rights, it would be a filibuster reform that only allows voting rights through with a simple majority. That's it. So that's not anywhere near what you could have gotten done if you played politics properly, if you did the LBJ thing and if you did the FDR thing. Look, you need a supermajority for anything. That's absurd. It should be a simple majority. So you have to abolish the filibuster. Or here, here's the compromise. At the very least, reform it back to the original filibuster. Back in the day, like in Mr. Swift, Smith Goes to Washington, that movie, the people who filibustered had to actually filibuster. You have to actually talk and hold the floor. And it made it really hard to block legislation because nobody wants to talk for days or weeks or whatever. So if you at least reform it back to the original filibuster, a lot more of the Democratic agenda will get through because they have to pick and choose where they're going to try to filibuster. But they're not even talking about that. Now all you have to do is say, I declare I'm filibustering, and then it's a 60-vote threshold. That's insane. He won't even agree to that. He won't even agree to go back to the original filibuster. He won't even agree to more carve-outs, and even if he does, it'll be so limited and so narrow that you're only going to get one thing through. It's a joke. It's a joke. So how'd that work out? How did it work when Joe Biden called Joe Manchin JoJo and backslapped with him and was talking nice to him all the time, when Oprah and Bill Clinton and Barack Obama and all the conservative Democrats were like, hey, Joe, here's why we need to change it? He's not going to budge because he doesn't care about the celebrities. He doesn't care about the niceties. He is representing the donor class. And the donor class wants him to hold up the democratic agenda. And so he's doing exactly that. He's representing his donors. He's representing the industries. He is corrupt. So you can't ask him to do it. You have to make him do it. And that ship sailed long ago. Joe Biden just doesn't have him in him, Have it in him. And we're all going to suffer the consequences as a result of it. Okay. Next. Next, next, next. Let's talk about John Ossoff and um, Nancy Pelosi. So John Ossoff, the uh, new senator from Georgia, he snubbed Nancy Pelosi by pushing a ban. Here, let me show you the um, Let me show you the thing here. John Ossoff expected to snub Pelosi by pushing ban on Congress stock trades. Wow. So Nancy Pelosi. My computer's acting up. my bad. Nancy Pelosi. Um, recently, there was a back and forth in a press conference she did where... She was asked, like, hey, why should you guys be allowed to do this? Um, shouldn't you ban Congress people from owning stocks? There's a clear conflict of interest. And her response was effectively, this is a free market, and I believe in a free market. That's not a free market. That's window dressing. You just put lipstick on a pig. What you're doing is corrupt. So now you're incentivized to make decisions to help your own stock portfolio instead of making decisions that help the American people. So... John Ossoff saw that, and he was annoyed by it. AOC also said, Congress people shouldn't be allowed to own stocks. Now, there was a previous bill that was proposed, but there was a big loophole in the bill, because the bill was, hey, let's ban Congress people from owning stocks, but it didn't say anything about staffers, and it didn't say anything about family members. And that's Pelosi's problem, is her husband is trading based off of insider information and making millions of dollars. So Ossoff said, we're going to close that loophole, and we're going to propose it, even though Nancy Pelosi doesn't want this proposed. So in that article, they say, Georgia Senator John Ossoff is looking to introduce a bill that would ban members of Congress from trading individual stocks, a practice that House Speaker Nancy Pelosi has defended as her husband rakes in millions of dollars trading shares of tech companies, the Post has learned. The Ossoff ethics bill, which the Democratic freshman senator plans to introduce once he finds a Republican co-sponsor, would crack down on conflicts of interest by making it illegal for lawmakers and their families to trade stocks while in office, a Washington, D.C. source close to the situation said. It would also likely require lawmakers to put their assets in blind trusts, a step that the 34-year-old Ossoff completed himself months after being elected in January 2021. No Senate Republicans appear to have publicly come out against congressional stock trade, so Ossoff may have trouble finding a co-sponsor in the Senate, but Republican support in the House is more likely since several GOP House members, um, they go on to say here, since several GOP House members, including Texas Representative Michael Cloud and Chip Roy, have come out against the practice. So, look. I don't know if you're going to find a single co-sponsor who's a Republican in the Senate. Why? Probably almost all of them, or all of them, have stocks. So, I don't know, Josh Hawley, um, Mitt Romney. Mitt Romney definitely is deep in the stock market. Hawley, I don't know if he is, but that would be the one where Ossoff would go to maybe find an alliance. And if he hasn't said no by uh, yes by now, he's probably not going to say yes. So, it's another classic example of, like, let's be bipartisan. And then it's like, oh, they're is no will on the right to do the right thing on this. So he might have to propose it just as a Democratic bill, but either way, he is correct. And look, this feeds a narrative that I've floated a number of times already, which is the best hope for the Democrats moving forward is a senator or a congressperson coming out of nowhere who captures the imagination of the country and ends up being able to win and hold the White House. Because we know what Kamala Harris is, and it's terrible. We know what Mayor Pete is, and it's terrible. We know what all the Democrats who are lined up and, you know, who are considered the favorites for the next election. We know who they are. And we know there's zero hope that these people will ever do the right thing on anything. We know that they're standard corporate Democrats, and they're playing the game from inside the party. The best we could hope for is Raphael Warnock, the other senator from Georgia, John Ossoff. The only thing we can hope for is for them not to suck, to be charismatic and to actually do well, And become president. That's the least bad scenario. But having said that, look, I'm waiting for these guys to disappoint me because I know it's coming. I know it's coming. But this is an instance where, if anything, he impressed me. Because this this is obvious. This is the right thing to do. Did you know there was a scandal at the Fed where they were doing stock trades and people were getting rich? Within a week, they banned uh, stock trading at the Fed. That's a body that is significantly less Democratic than the House and the Senate. And they were like, oh, shit, we were caught. And then they banned stock trades. But Nancy Pelosi, smug as can be, yeah, allow me to get rich based off insider information. Allow me to have open conflicts of interest and be brazenly corrupt. Well, at least some senators are against that. And that is definitely positive. But yet again, as is often the case, it's so common sense that it's probably DOA, dead on arrival which is a shame, but Ossoff is impressing me here. There was that great report that came from Business Insider. We covered it. Um, I forget the number now, but it was some ridiculous number of congresspeople, both representatives and senators, who are either violating the law or probably violating the law in terms of their stock trades and things of that nature. See, right now, you at least have to disclose it. Um, but they're even in violation of that. And we've given a number of specifics on this. I remember one of the most egregious examples was Tom Price was the former head of health and human services under Donald Trump. He was directly invested in, I think it was a medical device company, that he then pushed policy to raise the stock price of that industry and of that specific company. This sort of stuff happens all the time, all the time. And um, it's a joke. If you take this story and put it in an official enemy baddie state of the United States, we would laugh at how disgusting and out in the open the corruption is. But when we do it here, they just try to cover it up and do window dressing. Again, Nancy Pelosi calling it the free market. Ain't nothing free about it. It's a corrupt market is what it is. And you are getting wealthy based off insider information, and if a random Joe Schmo was doing that, they'd be in prison. So absolutely have to ban it. Look, even CNBC flipped on them with this. Even CNBC was like, there are more rules for, like, CEOs than there are for our politicians on this. And it's totally unacceptable. Okay. Let me take a quick break. And then when we come back, I got a lot more for you. Of course, my computer is acting up, which is a pain in the ass. Um, Anyway, we're going to talk about Alex Jones. And we are going to talk about, got some crazy-ass Fox News hosts doing crazy-ass Fox News shit, including uh, Stuart Varney defending... the Apple CEO making $100 million a year and taking shots at Bernie Sanders? And also, who can challenge Biden in the year 2024? The answer may surprise you, but it also may make you happy. So stay right there, guys. We will be right back. All right, y'all we are back let's see if I could get my computer to function properly ah! the answer is no <laughs> the answer is no all right I got to I got to bear with it I got to deal with it y'all okay let's talk about Alex Jones So Alex Jones, a little bit of information came out about him recently, and man, is this eye-opening. So take a look at this. Sebastian Murdoch says, Scoop, despite Alex Jones' constant pleas that he needs the financial backing of his supporters to keep his empire afloat, the Infowars store made more than $165 million over a three-year period, court records obtained by HuffPost show. That's $55 million a year. Take a look at this. Jones' lawyer Bradley Reeves did not respond to multiple requests for comment. Mark Bankston, a lawyer with Farrar and Ball, who represents Farrar and Ball, who represents several Sandy Hook parents suing Jones and who filed the la- latest motion, told HuffPost that the public filings speak for themselves and declined to comment further. The months of September and October 2015 saw a handful of orders a day, but just one year later, the Infowars store was making an average of about $110,000 a day, and some of Jones' most profitable days were the ones where he pushed his Sandy Hook lies. For instance, on November 18, 2016, Jones aired a segment titled Alex Jones, Final Statement on Sandy Hook, in which he said he has watched a lot of soap operas, and I've seen actors before, and I know when I'm watching a movie and when I'm watching something real. The InfoWars store made just over $100,000 that day. About five months later, on April 22nd, 2017, Jones published a new video on InfoWars titled Sandy Hook Vampires Exposed. The store made $90,000. They go on to point out um, the other most profitable days were around Trump's election and him sort of uh, jumping on that bad, bad wagon and um, becoming a big figure, you know, on the far right and in conspiracy circles. He, uh, so he was incentivized not only to be a Trump sycophant for so long, uh, but he was also incentivized to give the most bombastic, insane – Conspiracy theories, because he would make a tremendous amount of money when he did that. Um, I have to say, even I'm floored at the money he was making. $55 million a year. Now, a lot of the stuff is like survival gear and, uh, you know, T-shirts and things of that nature. But a lot of his store is scam supplements. Total scam supplements. So... Let me go ahead and give you guys, I have, I jotted down some of them here, okay, Survival Shield X2 is one, Um, the contents of the supplement, quote, it's just plain iodine, so he sells iodine and jacks up the price, Uh, there's Super Male Vitality, that's $70, and AnthroPlex, and those were uh, tested, and they are ineffective. Uh, By the way, I wonder what he's selling super metal vitality for. I think it's supposed to be, I don't know, like a Viagra or Cialis-type product or something like that, uh, or just increases your energy levels or whatever. Um, According to Newsweek, the Center for Environmental Health uh, tested some of these products, and two of them contained potentially dangerous levels of heavy metal like lead, which is harmful to the body. Quote, the chemical was found in the InfoWars Caveman Paleo formula and the InfoWars MycoZX supplements. Um, and to give some more specifics on that, the formula is more than two times the daily limit for lead under California law, and the people who take MycoZX would ingest more than six times the daily limit for lead under California law. Now, I've also covered on this show in the past, Alex Jones, you know how he does, like, commercials at the end of every um, segment he posts? He was doing these just over-the-top claims, these incredibly scammy supplement products, and he was hawking them. And um, the Attorney General of New York even ordered that he stop pretending that his Infowars toothpaste cures coronavirus because he was acting like his toothpaste would kill coronavirus. Oh, my God. So, listen, this is one of those things – not many other people say this, but it's true. The bigger crime of Alex Jones is not even the, you know, doing conspiracy theory stuff around Sandy Hook, because we do have free speech in this country, and so it's hard to pin on him any particular crime for saying things that are demonstrably incorrect. Um, he ended up losing those lawsuits, but he lost them by default. So that just means he didn't provide the courts with all the records that they were asking for, and so they ruled against him, but it wasn't because he actually necessarily violated any laws on that front. The bigger problem with Alex Jones is his scam-ass supplements that he sells. And there's a great argument to be made that he's committing fraud all the time. Now, I don't know what percentage of the $55 million he made a year through his store were his supplements, but that's where the real case is. The real case is him making bogus claims about how effective these scam supplements are and then people taking them and not seeing those effects. And that's something where he could genuinely be taken down for. But look at this. $55 Fifty five million a year. This guy we just covered the story in response to him being found guilty by default. He went out on his on air and begged big donors for money. Wealthy donors for money. He even said it. We covered it. So he's begging wealthy donors for money and acting like, you know, oh my God, we're gonna go under. Fifty five million dollars a year. Fifty five million dollars a year. I said this the other day. He's more Trumpy than Trump. Alex Jones is. He somehow created this niche for himself, this lane for himself, and um, he's been getting away with it for so long. Well, now the chickens are coming home to roost in the sense that he was found guilty by default in the Sandy Hook cases, but really, you know, I don't know if anybody's working on it, but they should be, the cases over the scam-ass supplements, because that is a clear-cut case, in my opinion, of fraud. And as he's begging big donors for money, He's actually making $55 million a year, uh, and it's perfect, doesn't it? It's exactly the kind of Alex Jones story that eventually we thought would come out. But honestly, I was even floored by $55 million a year. God damn, son. God damn. And now he's banned in a thousand different ways, and he's on some fan.video or something like that. That's the only outlet that I could find him on. But he's still chugging along, man. He's still chugging along, and kicking everybody else's ass in terms of the money he's making when it comes to new media and independent media, although I don't know if you could call him that for sure, but Jesus. Somebody, for the love of God, look into those supplements with a fine-tooth comb, look into real cases of fraud, because that is what that is. And it would have been a much easier case than the Sandy Hook case. Honestly, the prosecutor just got lucky that Alex Jones didn't participate in the proper way, and he was found guilty by default. Because I think if the case actually had to go through to his conclusion, he might not have been found guilty because he, he always gives himself enough wiggle room. Like, he would talk about, oh, my God, Sandy Hook's a conspiracy and it's fake and all this stuff. But he never would say, like, hey, my followers, please do direct threats of violence against these parents who lost their kids and here's their addresses and stuff like that. And so there was enough wiggle room where I think he could have gotten off. But we got the best of both worlds. He was found guilty by default because he just didn't give all the court rec- all his documents to the court well, now, some of the court records he did give, now we know. Homeboy is straight up swimming in a pool of cash, and uh, a lot of it is from scam supplements. So, time to go after the low-hanging fruit. Some federal prosecutor or some state prosecutor or something, this is the real deal Holyfield. Homeboy's making $55 million, definitely making millions from scam supplements alone, and might want to look into that because, um, You and I know damn well those supplements, based on the evidence, but also based on just our gut feelings from the beginning of it that there's no way this guy's selling real, like, medical shit and real shit that, like, helps you. Um, There you have it. Oh, I like this one a lot. So here we go, everybody. Um, We have Marianne Williamson, who is really a darling of the left in many respects. We have a name that has now been floated to primary Joe Biden in 2024 that I wholly agree with. Um, And it's being floated in official quarters, too. Let's go ahead and take a look at this video, and then we'll come back and discuss oh boy oh boy fucking things not working all right let's try again
2: Senator Bernie Sanders former campaign
3: manager predicts President Biden will face a progressive primary challenger in 2024 Those comments come as the president faces slumping poll numbers on his overall approval rating and on key issues like the economy and coronavirus correspondent Alexandria Hoff has the story tonight from Washington the president has every intention of running for re-election, but he may be met with friendly fire. Former presidential campaign manager for Senator Bernie Sanders told Politico this week, quote, if nothing else, a progressive running who gets a lot of support will demonstrate that the ideas that the progressive movement embraces are, in fact, popular. In modern U.S. history, an incumbent president has never lost a primary nomination, but when the primary was competitive, it coughed the sitting president. Presidents Gerald Ford, Jimmy Carter, and George H.W. Bush were each challenged, and while they won the nomination, each lost the general election. As talk of a possible primary challenger has spread, progressive names have been floating around, like Nina Turner, former Ohio State Senator, and former presidential candidate Marianne Williamson. With any campaign not likely to form until after the midterms, the Biden White House does have some time before they have to calculate real competition.
1: So Nina Turner, she can very well win that congressional seat that she barely lost last time. She has the ability to do that. And if she were to run again, I think she should run for that. Um, Now, there is a little bit of a paradox and a conundrum with running against Biden in a primary when he's an incumbent Democratic president. It's true to say that that never works. I tell you guys, it never works. It never works. You're never going to unseat an incumbent because what happens is partisanship kicks in on the next level. And you have basically Democratic voters fall in line like sheep, like lemming. And um, lemming? Lemmings? You get the point. And um, you're just not going to unseat an incumbent president. It wouldn't work on the Republican side. It wouldn't work on the Democratic side. Um, You go into it kind of knowing that. But I will say this, if Marion Williamson runs, we absolutely change the conversation and the national dialogue and shift it back on the grounds where it should be, where we're talking about issues, we're talking about policy substance, we're pressuring Biden. All the pressure he's getting right now is from his right. Everybody in D.C. tells him, all his staffers, everybody he's surrounded by, oh, no, don't do that. We can't do that. Oh, no, don't do that. That's too bold. Oh, no, don't do that. That'll make your poll numbers go down, even though it would make his poll numbers go up if he did actual left-wing stuff. So all the pressure he feels is from the right. He needs to be reminded, no, the stuff the American people want are out here on the left, and you're having a skewed conversation in the Oval Office. And look, we have a whole younger generation now that's fed up. That They're fed up. They hate politics as it is. They hate business as usual. They hate the status quo. Nothing's ever worked for them their entire lives, and they're just waiting for a real voice to channel those that pain and, and those frustrations and to give people real, concrete solutions. So she should run. Now, look, it is also, got to keep it real, it is also, in a sense, career suicide, because they even used that against Bernie. When Bernie ran in 2016, Bernie floated a primary against Obama in 2012, and that hurt him. So in a sense, it is career suicide. But Marianne Williamson... I don't know what her future political aspirations are or if she even has any, but this could be her moment in this sense. We can break the record of the number of votes that a challenger to an incumbent Democratic president gets, and that'll send a clear message, and like I said, that shifts the conversation in the media back to the grounds where it should be, and look, she would. Have, I'm not going to front here. She would have to run a laser-focused campaign on the issues that matter the most, and She would have to find a way to be palatable, honestly, not just to the Democratic base, but to disaffected independents and even people who might lean right who are fed up with the system. And if she runs and she goes all in on Medicare for all, free college, student loan debt elimination, a living wage, unionization, ending the wars, standing up to the status quo and to corporations and to lobbyists and billionaires and she does it aggressively, she does it proudly, and she does it with a good team around her. Oh, she can make some noise. She, understand, even if you get 15% of the vote in a primary against an incumbent Democrat, I think that would break the record. Shit, we can get 15 20 maybe even 25% if she runs the campaign right. And the other thing is, don't get it twisted. This would be one of the only things that would actually unify the left again. That was one of the things about the Bernie Sanders campaigns that's underrated in terms of its impact. He got a lot of people involved politically who previously weren't involved politically. Also, it unified the left in a way that we hadn't seen in such a long time. You have all these disparate factions of the left who are always at each other's throats and always arguing with each other, and they take their eye off the ball oftentimes, and they're not talking about the issues that matter, and it becomes about these you know, small disagreements that blow up into big disagreements. Well, here you have a unifying figure. You can take the different factions of the right, uh, excuse me, of the left and bring them together to fight the right and to fight the corporate Democrats. And so the upsides far outweigh the downsides. And the other thing is you have a spark again for a movement that's now latent. Bernie started a movement and now the movement is factionalized and disparate and the wind are out of the sails. Well, let's bring some of that wind back to the sails let's unify again. Let's focus on the things that matter. Let's remind people that a better world is possible. Because right now you don't get that when it's just the cult of Trump on the right and the total sycophants to corporations and big business. And then you have the, the neoliberal cult on the democratic side where they're centrists and think a better world isn't possible. And the best we can do is tw- tweaks around the edges. I mean, FDR and LBJ are rolling over in their grave right now. So Marianne Williamson would need to run and say, look, I'm the real voice of the people, and that's why you need to vote for me. I'm actually going to listen to the American people. And look, I would have specific things that she runs on that could be a game changer in American politics. One of the ideas I like that I've been arguing for until I'm blue in the face is this notion of why are we just talking about upgrading our infrastructure? why aren't we talking about having the best infrastructure in the world by far? Number one in the world. Let's lap everybody else. Let's get in front of Japan and China and, and other developed countries. Let's have the best infrastructure that's an envy of the world. Let's take that spirit of the New Deal and reapply it today. Let's Do a law where we have national direct ballot initiatives so that every time you go vote for president, you also get to vote on the top five political issues of the time. Wouldn't it be amazing if the American people got to directly vote on whether or not the minimum wage should be a living wage? Wouldn't it be amazing if the American people got to directly vote on um, legalizing marijuana? Because I have way more faith in the American people than I do in corrupt politicians, and I think at least 80% of the time the American people would make the right decision. You can run and put this idea front and center. It's a way to get around the corruption in Washington, D.C. It's to have the people have a direct say. Look, that's just two ideas of what Marianne can run on and focus on. And these are ideas that would fire people up, that would get people involved. And uh, again, I'm under no illusions. It's never happened that uh, an incumbent president has been unseated by a primary challenger in their own party. But the benefits far outweigh the downsides. Because what do we have to lose? We have nothing to lose. We have nothing to lose. And what Biden demonstrated in his reaction to Bernie and Bernie's movement, Biden took a very different approach to Bernie Sanders than Hillary Clinton did. Hillary, after she got the nomination, it was, it was just like, fuck off, we won, piss off, we don't need you. Biden at least tried to be like, hey, Bernie people, I kind of like you, do you like me? Maybe I'll do some symbolic gestures. To So he's already shown this is a man who folds to the pressure wherever it's coming from. Oftentimes it comes from the right, almost all the time it comes from the right in Washington, D.C., so he's going right. Well, now we have to remind them, no. Imagine we have a primary challenge against Joe Biden. You get 25% of the vote in a primary challenge against Joe Biden as he's an incumbent president. You think that doesn't make him fall in line? You think that doesn't open his eyes In, in a sense? You think Marianne Williamson running won't inspire other Marianne Williamsons to then get involved? You think it won't unify the left in a way we haven't been unified since maybe Bernie 2016? Look, the time is now, and people are talking about it. And, look, I'll be prepared if she does it, because you know damn well, in many ways, she's going to be treated unfairly, and we're going to need to be her attack dogs. And um, I'm ready to knuckle up for that fight, because everybody has a lot of pent-up aggression and anger over the fact that we're not moving in the direction we need to be moving in. We had a transformational moment and a non-transformational president. And... um, Look, I'm all for it. I think she should do it. I think Marianne Williamson should run in 2024 against Joe Biden. I think that will change the conversation, unify the left, get people more involved, uh, put a spotlight on the issues that matter the most, get a whole new generation involved in politics, inspire other people to run, let people know better things are possible. And she should reclaim this mantle, man, the mantle of actually, no, you know who the extremists are? It's the Republicans in Washington, D.C. and the corporate Democrats. They are the extremists. Maybe I'm the moderate because I'm representing the will of the American people. So people, you're going to be given an option now. Now you have an option to vote for somebody who's not bought by big donors and billionaires and corporations. You're going to have an opportunity to vote for yourself, your own voice in Washington, D.C. That's what I represent. I'm the true moderate. I'm the true centrist. I'm right in the center of mainstream American political opinion. She should reclaim that mantle. She should run on that. Let's do it. Run, Marianne, run. Let's change the game. Next. I saw something on Twitter that um, blew my mind. Couldn't believe this was a real tweet. I had to double take. But it's real. The Texas Republican Party entered the dumb tweet Hall of Fame with this. If you can wait in line for a COVID test, you can wait in line to vote. And you see a long line there of uh, people waiting for a COVID test. And they are unironically saying long lines for a COVID test are possible. Well, then wait to vote as well. If you can wait in line for hours for testing, you can vote in person. This is the Republican Party coming out in favor of long lines. Guys, you're not even hiding the thing you're supposed to hide. You're saying the quiet part loud. That's what you just did. This is a, a platform of let's actively make everything worse. By the way, there's all, you can COVID test and then mail it. You can do that. So why shouldn't you be able to do mail-in voting? You should. You should. All the claims of voter fraud and the elections off—it all was total bullshit. It was false. We have 60 court cases to prove it. They did the Arizona audit where they thought, oh my God, there's widespread fraud and Trump actually won. Turns out, not only did Biden win, he won by a bigger margin than people had previously thought after they did the audit. But they're—I mean, anybody who claims that the Republican Party does not want to do voter suppression—they're admitting it. They're saying, we want you to wait on a long line. Go wait on a long line. Well, that disincentivizes people for voting because some people have to go to work and some people have to do this or that. So you're admitting that you don't want everybody to vote. Gee, I wonder who they don't want to vote. Hmm. It gets back to the voter ID debate. It gets back to all that stuff because that provides a disincentive for usually poor and disenfranchised people and people of color to go vote. The long lines are almost always in the, the places where there are more people of color. The long lines are almost always in poor places. So in other words, the Democratic precincts are the ones where they have long lines on purpose. Go back. Listen, don't take my word for it. Go back and read the history, the Voting Rights Act, the Civil Rights Act. Go back and look at the things that the southern states used to do to suppress the vote of the people they didn't want voting. You know, further back you go, you got poll tests and literacy tests, and they put every barrier up imaginable. They close polling places in areas where you need more polling places to form a line so that fewer people vote. It suppresses the vote. It's a historical truism in modern American history. The lower the turnout, the more likely it is that Republicans win. The higher the turnout, the more likely it is the Democrats win. That's a fact. And so when they do voter suppression, when they argue for long lines, what they're doing is trying to effectively rig the election, ironically, as they scream that, oh my God, the Democrats are rigging the election. Unbelievable. Guys, you said the quiet part loud. You're not supposed to say this part out loud. They want a worse system. They want you to wait online. Nobody has to wait online for a COVID test or to vote. That's a symptom of a failed state and a failed system of government. I can't believe I have to do this commentary. I can't believe I have to talk about this right now. How do you even respond to this? This is one of those things that's so egregious that you look at it and you're like, I don't even know what to say. There's like 18 different directions I can go in in responding to this. But how can anybody look at that and go, I think the Republicans are reasonable? Long lines are reasonable? It's only reasonable if you know your polling place isn't going to have long lines, but the place where the people who vote the opposite way, where they vote, I want them to have long lines. So as a matter of principle, not believing in democracy. Just ends justify the means garbage. As long as I win, I don't care how I get there. Forget the process. Forget the procedure. Forget democracy. Forget fairness. Forget justice. Forget equality what a sick joke, man. What a sick joke. No lines for COVID tests. No lines for voting. That would be the ideal situation. If we had a functioning government, that would be the reality. But now we know the Republican Party would look at that and say, eh, not a fan. Let's bring back those lines. Okay. Oh, this one is rough. This one is rough. So there's a a QAnon star online who um, was very vocally against the vaccine, and it turns out she just died of COVID. So look at this from the Daily Beast. They say, QAnon star who said only idiots get, get vaxxed dies of COVID. Kristen or Kirsten Weldon told her fans not to get vaccinated and wanted Dr. Fauci executed. She just died of COVID. Uh, Okay, so what a mess. They say a leading QAnon promoter who urged both her followers and strangers. She passed on the street not to take the COVID vaccine died Thursday of the coronavirus, making her just the latest vaccine opponent killed by the disease. Uh, Kirsten Weldon had amassed tens of thousands of followers across right-wing social media networks by promoting the pro-Trump QAnon conspiracy under the screen name Kirsten W. She was prominent enough to become a sort of QAnon interpreter for comedian conspiracy theorist Roseanne Barr and started recording videos about QAnon with her. Weldon focused on attacking vaccines and other efforts to fight COVID-19, saying in one video that Dr. Anthony Fauci needs to be hung from a rope. She claimed the vaccine killed people and even recorded herself yelling at people standing in line to receive vaccines. Quote, the vaccine's killed. Don't get it, Weldon warned the waiting vaccine recipients in an undated video posted to one of her online accounts. This is how gullible these idiots are. They're all getting the vaccine. In late December, however, Weldon started showing symptoms of coronavirus infection. In her last video posted on December 28th, Weldon struggled through her remarks about the coming overthrow of the United States government, coughing and complaining that she was exhausted. Oh, boy. All right. So... um, think I have some more on this for you guys. Yeah, I do. Three days later, Weldon was hospitalized in Camarillo, California. She posted a picture of herself wearing an oxygen mask to Instagram and claimed she had bacterial pneumonia. Weldon wrote in a post on the social media network Telegram that she refused to take coronavirus treatment remdesivir, calling it Dr. Fauci's remdesivir. Oh, my God. Weldon's death from COVID is just the latest instance of a far-right personality who opposed vaccination being killed by the virus. On January 3rd, radio host Doug Kuzma died while infected with the coronavirus. In August, QAnon promoter Robert David Steele died of the virus shortly after posting a picture of himself in an oxygen mask and vowing to still refuse the vaccine. In face of these deaths, their surviving friends and supporters have started to allege that the dead QAnon figures are being murdered, either because they were refused internet folk remedies like ivermexin or hydroxychloroquine or because they were killed by the deep state to cover up their conspiracy theories in december kuzma and a number of other conspiracy theorists were sickened with covid-like symptoms after appearing together at a conference rather than acknowledge that they had covid the far-right influencers suggested they had been targeted by an anthrax attack and now by the way a lot of the q people are going after threatening the doctors who tried to help this woman this is a level of brainwashing I don't know if I've ever seen. Because not only did she refuse the vaccine and call people who got it idiots, and then she was hospitalized, she wouldn't say she had COVID, but she had COVID. She also said, I don't want remdesivir either. Why? Because I guess at some point along the line, Fauci said remdesivir is one of the treatments that we use. She goes, that's Dr. Fauci's remdesivir, I don't want it. Uh, you know, My guess is a lot of the other anti-vaxxers, if they get sick, the second they're in the hospital, whatever the doctors want to give them, they're like, load me up, buddy, <laughs> whatever it may be. And remdesivir is one of the. That's one of the things Trump got, along with the monoclonal antibodies and other things. But he says no to that stuff too. Here's how you know it's It's a conspiracy theory, when evidence disproving it becomes further evidence on your side, and that's exactly what happened here. Like the conference of the QAnon people, where they all got COVID, and then they said, "No, we were poisoned with anthrax because." They don't want the truth getting out, and we're giving people the truth. And so now this woman dying to other conspiracy theorists, now it's, oh, you killed her because she was telling the truth, and so you murder her. It's not that she got COVID because she was unvaccinated and she died. It's that she was speaking too much truth, and so now you guys killed her effectively. Oh, my God. So it is, it's impossible to disprove what they're saying. There is no evidence that they say, yes, that is evidence counter to my narrative. They take anything and twist it into further evidence of their narrative. TFG, dog, TFG, too far gone. Look, I have more faith in the powers of persuasion than maybe anybody. But on this front, I don't know how you get through these people. If you see, hey, you all got COVID at a conference. If you see, hey, look, she got COVID, will not even call it COVID. I have bacterial pneumonia. What? What? Listen, get vaccinated. That's all I can say is get vaccinated. It's not. I understand if you're skeptical of the data that comes directly from Big Pharma, good. I am too. Because they juice the numbers. And so we know whether it's Pfizer or, or Moderna or whoever. When they run their own trials, usually they put the best face on it that they possibly can. Be skeptical of that. You should be. But as soon as the independent studies come out, okay, well, now you say, it is what it is, the results are what they are. This is just empirical data. And what we know is the vaccines prevent against severe illness, hospitalization, and death, over 90%. So you are very, very protected. And if you get COVID, it is likely to be very mild. Some people won't even get COVID if they're vaccinated at all, and other people will get COVID and be very, it'll be a very mild illness. That's what we know. But if you're unvaccinated, it's a crapshoot, man. You know, you can be one of the unlucky people who, whatever, has some sort of pre-existing condition or uh, is overweight or just for whatever reason, genetically, this is a virus that doesn't jive well with you and it's fatal. This is the reality. And so you should protect yourself by getting vaccinated. But then also, yes, if you go into the hospital, take what the doctors are giving you. These people are trained experts. They have a much better idea of what works and what doesn't than you do. You can't just read some Reddit thread and be like, well, now I'm a, a bigger expert than any of the actual experts. Now, look, I got no love for Dr. Fauci either, but I have no love for Dr. Fauci because of the provable, demonstrable things he said that were false along the way, like masks don't work early on in the pandemic. Bullshit. He laughed at the idea of the, the, that this may have come from a lab in China. Well, we know it's very likely it did come from that lab. We know that. I mean, they studied bat coronaviruses there. This is a bat coronavirus. It's not crazy to think, hey, maybe it came from there. So there were many things he said that were wrong. And the other thing is, there's no humility. They don't say, hey, when they're wrong, they're not like, yeah, I'm wrong, or or, I don't know. So I have no love for these people. But Fauci is not representative of all doctors in the country and all experts in the country. And also, if you look at the independent data and you look at the numbers, the vaccine works. So for the love of God, get vaccinated. And don't take any piece of evidence and twist it into supporting your narrative when it very clearly on its face does not do that. If this woman was vaccinated, it's very likely she wouldn't have died. And the QAnon stuff, guys, get over it. Look, there are real conspiracies out there. Everybody knows that. Um, Whether it's Bay of Pigs or Tuskegee Experiment or or COINTELPRO, there's all sorts of conspiracies that are real. But what QAnon does is they extrapolate it to the most absurd place and actually undermine the conspiracies that are real because then they act like everything's a conspiracy. And, you know, Pizzagate is real, and Democrats are drinking children's blood, and they're vampires, and whatever. Trump is the savior against the deep state. like you guys became so anti-establishment that, ironically, you went full circle and now support the establishment because Trump is a representative of the establishment. So wake up, man. Wake up. She had COVID. She died. If she was vaccinated, she probably wouldn't have. A lot of the other – the far-right radio hosts. How many times have I told you guys this? The local and state-level radio hosts who are conservatives, who are anti-vax, they meant it, and a lot of them died from COVID. At the national level, all the ones who pretend and cosplay like they're anti-vax, none of them die. Weird. Why hasn't any national right-wing figure died of COVID, but so many state and local ones have, answer? Because the ones at the national level are vaccinated. They just pretend like, oh, be skeptical of this. And they're playing a role. They're playing a character. That's why they're fine. They're protected. But the ones who are the true believers, a lot of them are dead. Again, that's what the numbers show. That's not me talking. I've covered the stories of these people. Don't be one of these people. I genuinely feel bad for these people who've been brainwashed and they uh, end up dying of COVID because they thought the vaccine was a hoax or the vaccine has a microchip or the vaccine doesn't work or whatever. And you can also be skeptical of big pharma and question the profit motive while also acknowledging the vaccines work. Yeah, Man, it, it really sucks. It sucks. It sucks. Wake up, guys. Wake up. Wake up. Wake up. Sometimes the conspiracy is more obvious than you think. And in the case of the vaccines, the conspiracy is they won't lift the patent protections. They're allowing big pharma to make Endless amounts of money while denying the vaccines to the developing world. That's the real scandal. That's the real scandal. The vaccine itself is not a scandal or a conspiracy. It's that they're keeping it from the majority of the world population. That's the real scandal. Not this cockamamie thing you made up about microchips and QAnon and this and that. She's dead. She's dead because she didn't get vaccinated. I hope some people learn from that. All right, next. So Fox News host Stuart Varney uh, did what he always does on his show, which is he pretends that billionaires and the mega-wealthy are victims. So he's going to talk about Tim Cook, CEO of Apple, and how much money he made. He's going to say, Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren are not going to like this. Um, So let's take a look, and then I'll respond.
2: Here is a news item which is really going to annoy Bernie Sanders and Senator Elizabeth Warren. Because <laughs> we've now just found out how much Tim Cook made this, I think last year should be correct. How much did he make last year? Big yeah. bucks, right? De- you know, he deserves
3: it. He deserves it. He's the head of Apple. $98.7 million. Up 500%. Tell, tell, tell
2: back to Bernie Sanders or Elizabeth Warren. He deserves $100 million.
3: He's already committed almost all of it to charity, so tell them that, too. Okay. Um, you want the breakdown? Because his base sure. salary is not that high. It's $3 million. He got $12 million for hitting specific targets, got $1.5 million for travel security, all that. Here's the big one. $82.4 million in stock awards, including the first one ever. He's been CEO for a decade, the first one for performance. He got an equity
2: award. Okay. When he takes delivery of that stock, you'll have to – pay personal income tax on
0: it.
2: Yeah. And there'll be, uh, with Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren,
1: you've been looking at 50%, but that's another story. No! <laughs> yes! When, first of all, he's not going to take delivery of that. He made $98 million in one year. If only $3 of that is his actual compensation, the rest of that is just wealth gain. So that adds his net worth. He's not actually going to take that out, so he's not going to get taxed 50% on it. That's a lie. That's a lie. ProPublica did the breakdown of, hey, here are the billionaires, here's their true tax rate, and their true tax rate is like 3% in some cases and 0% in other cases and 1% in other cases. They, never, they always pay less as a percentage than their freaking secretaries do. And Warren Buffett issued that challenge a decade ago and said, I'll give a million dollars of my own money to any CEO who can show that their secretary pays a, higher, a lower tax rate than they do, and nobody collected because nobody could because all the CEOs were paying a lower tax rate. So he's just misleading you on purpose. But even if that was taxed at 50%, I would file that under based. Why? $50 million in one year going to one person. I think you're going to be all right. But this is what, this is what he does. He acts like, well, the, the wealthy and the billionaires and the corporations, they're victims of an oppressive government. They're victims of an oppressive government. Well, what about the more than half of workers in the U.S. that make $30,000 a year or less? It's not because they're not working hard. It's not because they're not trying. It's because the system does not reward the kind of work that they do. What about the 80% of Americans that live paycheck to paycheck? What about the 30 million Americans who don't have health insurance? What about the 45,000 people who die because they don't have basic health care? I can go on and on with these statistics. What about the over 500,000 homeless Americans? What about the homeless veterans in America? You're concerned about the people in the country who... you should concern the least about. They're fine. They're fine. And it's not a meritocracy. They didn't just earn it. And by the way, a lot of the stuff they said there's not true. Um, One of them just says he deserves it. What does that even mean he deserves it? What does that mean? He deserves it. Then uh, the lie of, well, he's giving it all to charity. A lot of these CEOs do this goofy thing. I don't even know if Tim Cook is one of these, but they do this goofy thing and they say, I will only take a salary of a dollar. Or they say, I'm going to donate all of my salary to charity. And that's, makes the media, the gullible idiots in the media, who probably are lying on purpose, there's probably propaganda that they're in on as well, they act like, look at this, look at how benevolent and altruistic the rich are, isn't charity wonderful? But again, what they don't tell you is, that's just their salary. They're not talking about the actual gain in wealth that they have. So if you give $3 million, but you keep $98 million or $95 million of the $98 million, is that really like, oh, you're really looking out for, for Poor people and people who are hurting, of course not. Of course not. Jesus Christ, it's, this is such shameless propaganda. Now, why don't we go ahead and take a look. This is from Thinking Now. Let's take a look at how um, Tim Cook and Apple really create all that wealth. He a,
2: was a worker at the Foxconn factory as a 24-year-old. He is now diagnosed with leukemia. He claims that the toxic chemical benzene used extensively in the manufacturing of iPhones was the cause of it. The documentary further details the horrific reality of the world's largest electronic supplier. Apple went on to ban the use of hazardous chemicals from its final assembly of the iPhone in 2014, but it is still permitted for use in the early production stages. In 2010, the Longhua assembly line was plagued with a string of suicides. Workers began killing themselves in turn. Worker after worker threw themselves off the towering dorm buildings, usually in broad daylight. These were tragic displays of desperation and protest at the working conditions found inside. There were 18 reported suicides that year, with 14 confirmed deaths. 20 more workers were talked down by other employees of the company. The epidemic caused a huge media sensation, with the factory and its working conditions in full view of the world. Apart from the already shambolic corporation response of installing anti-suicide nets around the windows, Apple also made new workers sign pledges that stated that they would never attempt to kill themselves. Many people in and around the factory have given several interviews further documenting how bad it was. It is not a good place for human beings, according to the various workers and normal folks in and around the factory site. Workers have long lamented that none of the work being trumpeted by the media was actually being done. The conditions inside are apparently as bad as ever.
1: So the Foxconn factory that makes the Apple products in China, uh, they overwork them to no end. They underpay them. There was an epidemic of suicides, and in order to stop that, they made them sign a pledge, I'm not going to commit suicide, and also added nets outside their windows. So if they jump off, they just land in the net. I'm a hypocrite just like everybody else. I have an iPhone. These issues are systemic. We have to address them at the policy level. That's the only way. And so, you know, people always say, oh, we – can't make factories here because then you have to pay the workers too much and it'd be too difficult and the way the supply chain works and nonsense if you have if there's a will there's a way you can absolutely find a way to make these sorts of products here or at the very least clean up the way business is done have stricter rules and regulations have overtime pay have a max number of hours that people can work mandate a certain quality of life any government has the ability and the authority to implement basic regulations that look out for working people. So we need to do that. This is how Apple and Tim Cook make their money. This is how they do it. Now, I'm not saying you you ban iPhones or whatever. I'm saying you, as much as is humanly possible, do not outsource jobs, have good-paying jobs here in the U.S., good-paying union jobs that build various products, and also have rules and regulations and labor protections that are not just here in the U.S., but they need to do it overseas as well whenever we do have, you know, trade agreements. We need to build into those trade agreements protections for workers, whether it's through permanent normal trade relations with China, NAFTA, or whatever trade agreement we want to talk about. That's how you fix the problem. And then also, of course, to get back to the main issue here, have better tax laws in the United States of America. You have to, I mean, there was a report that came out, after the Trump tax cuts, billionaires for the first time in history paid an effectively lower tax rate than working people. You've got to change that. You've got to raise taxes on the wealthy. You have to do it to actually create a meritocracy, because what we have right now is a meritocracy. What we have right now is a rigged system that helps billionaires and corporations and screws everybody else. That's why income and wealth inequality is higher than even the Gilded Age at this point. And Stuart Barney is a propagandist on Fox Business trying to make you think, no, if anything, billionaires and corporations and CEOs like Apple's Tim Cook, he's a victim of big, bad, mean Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren. Aren't Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren so stupid for wanting to look out for working people and tax wealthy people a fair amount? Where they will still be phenomenally wealthy, but maybe not so wealthy that the people who work for them don't have health care or can't afford food or need to rely on the social safety net or what have you? Oh, my God. Doesn't matter how much ruthless exploitation there is out there, Stuart Barney will come rushing to the defense of billionaires and act like they are the ones who are the victims. They are not the victims. They bought the system. They own the system. They rigged the rules in their favor, and he's hiding the truth from you. Okay, we're almost done, y'all. This week was the 78th anniversary of one of the greatest speeches ever given by an American president. There's a lot of competition, to be fair, but um, FDR laid out what he called a second Bill of Rights. It's an economic Bill of Rights. This is the direction that he wanted America to go in. This is after the... New Deal era, uh, around the World War II era. He wanted us to um, evolve and create a better society, a society that functions more efficiently, a more fair, a more just society. And um, he laid out in detail what his plans were for the future. So let's take a look, and then I'm going to react to it certain economic proofs have become accepted as self-evident. A second Bill of Rights, under which a new basis of security and prosperity
3: can be established for all, regardless of state or race or free. Among these are the right to a useful and remunerative job, the right to earn enough to provide adequate food and clothing and recreation, The right of every farmer to raise and sell his products at a return which will give him and his family a decent living. The right of every businessman, large and small, to trade in an atmosphere of freedom, freedom from unfair competition and domination by monopolies at home or abroad. The right of every family to a decent home, The right to adequate medical care and the opportunity to achieve and enjoy good health. The right to adequate protection from the economic fears of old age, sickness, accident, and unemployment. The right to a good education. All of these rights spell security. And after this war is won, We must be prepared to move forward in the implementation of these rights to new goals of human happiness and well-being. For unless there is security here at home, there cannot be lasting peace in the world.
1: FDR died soon thereafter and he wasn't able to usher in his, his new vision. Uh, the second Bill of Rights is the following. Number one, a right to a job. It's a job guarantee. Number two, an adequate wage and decent living. That is uh, a living wage law, so make a minimum wage a living wage, but it's also arguably the right to a union, which some Scandinavian countries have. Uh, a decent home, a right to a home. Uh, the fourth one is right to medical care, single-payer health care. Number five is economic protection during sickness, accident, old age, or unemployment. So it's a right if you're unemployed, sick, uh, old, or you were in an accident. It's basically an expansion of social security. Um, And number six, a right to a good education. That would include higher education, college, and also probably trade school as well. That was the second Bill of Rights laid out by FDR. This was before the end of the war. This was the vision he wanted to usher in. FDR won the presidency four times. This was before we had term limits. Term limits came as a reaction to FDR dominating elections. Um, I don't remember the exact number, but the Democrats under FDR held like 70 or 80 percent of the seats in the House and the Senate. So here we have Americans got a little taste of social democracy with FDR, a little taste, and it's all they voted for. He won four times. He had 70 or 80 percent of the House and the Senate under his control. He was able to usher in the New Deal era, save us from the Great Depression. And this was his vision moving forward. This speech and this platform has been wiped out of modern American memory. Nobody talks about it. Nobody talks about it when this is arguably, if not the greatest president in American history, one of the greatest presidents in American history, I guess maybe put Lincoln and Washington up there with him, but either the best or one of the best, saying, hey, here's the path forward, here's what we need to do. And here we are, decades and decades and decades and decades later, in the year 2022. And we haven't done any of those things. None of them. So the guy who was the most popular, who won four elections, who dominated the, uh, the House and the Senate, had a vision that was so popular that he destroyed all partisan divides. He did. He did. He made it so people who, hey, you know, hey, I'm kind of conservative, but I like what he's doing. I'm on the left, I like what he's doing. I'm apolitical, but I like what he's doing. He's fixing the country, he's moving us in the right direction. We can get back to this. What FDR did here, what he talked about here, it really uncovers the current institutional rot in the Democratic Party and what neoliberalism and the new democratic era has done to the democratic brain. Ever since Bill Clinton and onwards, what we have is, Republican-like Democrats. That's what they are. The Democrats started taking big money from corporations and the military-industrial complex and the insurance companies. They started taking money from, from lobbyists and donors that previously only gave to Republicans. And what happened? That watered down the Democratic Party. So now today's Democrats are like the Republicans of the 1980s. And so nobody's looking out for working people. Nobody's looking out for Americans. Nobody's the voice of the voiceless. If the Democrats would get back to this, if we had a Democratic figure who cleaned house, took no big money, and ushered in a new New Deal era, we could get back to this. And by the way, you would stop the embarrassment of perpetually losing to a cult. Donald Trump is a con man and a fraud and a charlatan, and he's amassed a cult of like 20 or 30% of the American population that won't leave his side no matter what. Only way you break the spell and you consistently defeat these people who believe in nothing. The Republican politicians in Washington, D.C. are bought and owned by corporate America and all they do is culture war, grievance, garbage 24-7. They should be the easiest people to beat ever anywhere in history. And Democrats struggle to beat them. And every election is close. And the pendulum goes back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. is rolling over in his grave. He could beat these guys with half his brain tied behind his back. This is the path forward. This is the path For the American people and for the Democratic Party. And if they embrace this, if they fight for this, we'll have another era where 70 or 80 percent of the people who are elected are Democrats. And a Democratic president will win back to back. Obviously, they can't do four years anymore, four terms anymore, because there's term limits now. But you could dominate a political era if you just do the right thing and represent the people. But they can't do that because the institutional barriers that they're beholden to corporations over the voters. And that's why we are where we are right now. And this is the plain truth of the matter, and nobody else will tell you this. Nobody in mainstream media will point out the obvious, which is – what everything I'm saying right now is obvious. It's so obvious. Anybody can see it. Anybody can deduce it. But nobody talks about it. And nobody knows it because this history has been buried. And because now you get this idea in your head of, well, better things really aren't possible. Best we can do is have Democrats in there, the lesser evil, and just do tweaks around the edges. No. No. And the younger generation is just waiting to hear this history. And the younger generation is waiting to get back to some sort of politics like this, because they know it's bullshit. They know what's going on right now is completely and utterly unbearable and insufferable, and it cannot continue. FDR was right. Bring back this reality. This is the platform moving forward. We should do everything we can to usher in this reality. Because if we do that, it changes the game, not just for the American people, but for the world. Okay. Final story of the day. Let me pull up the text messages, which I need for this segment. So recently we covered how the podcast Deep Fat Fried um, got a strike because there was a joke that was told that was interpreted literally by whoever was monitoring the podcast from YouTube. Um, so this is something that really shocked uh, TJ and, and Scotty and Paul's ego, the, the hosts on the podcast, and they appealed. They were like, what are you doing? So to give the context to everybody, Scotty made a joke about, you know, the, the, the Trump cultists who really believed the election was stolen, and he put on the accent and was like, You know, Donald Trump won this election fair and square, something like that, to that effect. It was a joke. It was obviously a joke. If you look at it in context, nobody could come away thinking it wasn't a joke. It was beyond clear. And anybody who knows their politics knows that they're Bernie Sanders-type leftists, and so, duh, of course it's a joke. Well, um, video was flagged, and they got a strike on their channel, and so they weren't able to live stream for an extended period of time. I don't remember all the specifics of it. But they appealed, and they thought, look, on appeal, they're obviously going to overturn this because it's ridiculous. Okay. Turns out that's not necessarily so. So after they rejected the appeal, um, you have uh, the host from Deep DeepFatFight reached out and said, said the following. So what are the answers to these questions I put forth? Number one, YouTube. so YouTube believes that a comedy podcast making satirical comments and jokes amounts to misinformation. Number two, you guys realize that people tell jokes They don't mean, right? Number three, if we joke that Joe Biden was elected because aliens used mind-controlled beams on people, would that also be misinformation per YouTube policies? Number four, who did we mislead? I look forward to hearing back from you with those answers. So here's the reaction. Hi, Scott. Hope you are doing well today. My name is Richard, and I'm stepping in for Jay today. I understand the importance of having this concern addressed, and we'll definitely find a way to take care of this. Fluff, fluff, fluff. In regards with your last inquiry, I think my colleague mistakenly took the timeline wrong since the follow-up questions were already raised five days ago. This was already asked, but we are still yet to receive any update from our internal team. Once I hear back from them, I will get back to you right away. Should you have any questions, please feel free to let us know or you can visit YouTube Help Center for more information. So that was somebody who um, who jumped in today, who jumped in uh, to respond, basically saying, pawning it off up the chain of command. Um, and saying, well, we're waiting to hear back, Uh, we want to help you, but we're really not in the driver's seat effectively. Then we get this. Hi Scott, hope you're doing well today. I know your time is valuable and I appreciate your attention. Let me share with you the update regarding your request. I just got an update from our support specialist and in regards with your inquiries, let me share the details here. We understand that there are videos for podcasts, but these are meant for entertainment, humor, and education, but on the way that the information was given, it can easily be misinterpreted by your viewers that couldn't have been misinterpreted at all. They weren't pushing election misinformation. By the way, even if they were, even if somebody genuinely sincerely believed that the election was stolen, they're wrong. We know they're wrong, but they're not allowed to say that? Why? By that logic, are you not allowed to say, "Hey, I don't think JFK I don't think the JFK official story is real." Are you not allowed to say that? Are you not allowed to talk about the Tuskegee experiments or Operation Northwoods or Bay of Pigs or Are you not allowed to give a a different viewpoint on what led us into the war in Iraq? Because the official story was a lie the whole time. If I question the official story, am I going to get banned? They continue, what you should do, consider the intention of your video. Is it to inform and educate or to shock and incite? Provide voiceover or text narration to your video. You can do this while recording or add it later while editing. Make sure the context can be seen or heard easily by someone watching the video. It's important to add information to the description and title as well as in the video content itself. What you shouldn't do, make violence the focus of your video. They didn't. Emphasize violent content by zooming, looping, or using other editing techniques that take away from your message. They didn't. Try to shock or disgust your viewers. They didn't. Use your video to glorify or celebrate violent acts. They didn't. Rely on metadata alone to provide context. Metadata can be supportive, but a viewer should be able to understand the context from watching and listening to the video alone. They didn't do any of these things wrong. So, in other words... They were very clear every step of the way. And these emails go on. Look, we made a joke. It's not unlike jokes we've made before. Uh, We don't think Donald Trump won the election. That was sarcasm. It was obvious. And now you're you're doing a, a strike on the video or not allowing live streaming for an extended period of time because of that. And YouTube's response is basically like, yeah. That's unbelievable. That's unbelievable. And look, we're caught between a rock and a hard place because I don't think any of these YouTube competitor sites are going to win out in the battle because YouTube kind of has a monopoly. They have the market cornered. And so it's not as simple as, oh, just go to another, just go to another outlet. It's not that simple. Uh, I, look, I think the only way out of this is to regulate all the big social media companies like their public utilities, expand first member protections. That doesn't mean you could dock somebody or do direct threats of violence or targeted harassment or libel or slander, all that stuff is still illegal. It's illegal under our current system of government or our current constitution. But you would more so rely on or lean on the side of freedom of speech. And if this doesn't fall under freedom of speech, they basically banned comedy. Any comedy that's sort of edgy that they don't like the message of or they interpret literally, YouTube just banned it. We could pull you down at our own whim because we don't like the joke. Does anybody realize the precedent that this sets? It's an absolute mess. So anyway, listen, go support the Deep Fat Ride podcast. They're on Patreon. They do a whole bunch of content. Go check them out. Uh, what happened to them here is totally unfair. And, man, you really see it. YouTube is not objective in their standards. Their standards are unclear. It relies on interpretation, subjective interpretation. Oftentimes, idiots are doing the, the interpretations. Uh, you, you, definitely have a, you definitely have tiers of monetization and tiers of how well the algorithm treats you. We've talked about Jordan Sheridan, 100,000 YouTube subscribers, so go live and get like 10 viewers because his stuff is buried. And the reason his stuff is buried is because he was on the ground during January 6th, and he had live video from on the ground. And YouTube interpreted that as he's like supporting the rioters, and he wasn't. He's just doing his job, which is to give the news. And he had a live stream of it. Guess what? CNN, MSNBC, uh, you know, all the big major media outlets licensed that footage from Jordan Chariton so they could use it. That footage is up on the corporate networks, but they pulled it down on Jordan's channel when he's the one who originally recorded it. It's at least a two-tier system. It's probably like six or seven tiers. People get screwed all the time. We've hit a wall in terms of sub-growth because the algorithm doesn't push us to anybody new anymore. It's only people who are already Here. Who get to see the videos so YouTube is effectively uh, destroying independent media new media comedy stuff fun and interesting stuff and it's a shame so support all the creators who you love because it's a rough time if they're saying anything interesting they're being suppressed by YouTube and this is another great example of it here alright guys we're done baby I love y'all I'll talk to you soon. Everybody have a great rest of your day. Peace.